Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hansom. When it comes to writing about war, past writers will glorify it with added moments of pathos. Who can forget the stirring, once more into the breach, dear friends, speech from Henry V? And which of us classicist hasn't at some point read and appreciated the Iliad, a story of perhaps the most famous war ever? Yet since the world wars blighted both old age and youth alike, many writers have taken to avoiding the glories of the battlefield. We've gone from close up the wall with our English dead to being sobered by the fact that the official death count for World War I is 40 million, with the Battle of the Somme alone accounting for 1 million injuries and 300,000 fatalities. With these terrifying statistics in mind, more modern writers use war as a backdrop to explore aspects of humanity that are intensified when conflict arises. Speaking to us today is Catherine Arden, whose new novel, The Warm Hands of Ghosts, is set in World War I and follows a brother and a sister through very different journeys. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. Can you tell Thank our listeners? <laughs> Sorry. Right. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I can tell. Uh, <laughs> do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your work? Um, absolutely. I am the author of books for adults and for children. I have written a historical fantasy trilogy called the Winter Night Trilogy, set in Russia during the Middle Ages, um, beginning with the book The Bear and the Nightingale which came out in 2017. I've also written four books for children um, set in my home state of Vermont. And The Warm Hands of Ghosts, my newest book, will be my eighth novel. And it follows a brother and sister um, during the last year of the First World War. Thank you for that. I mean, I've read the book and I I really, really loved it. Um, And I like reading a lot of fantasy. And war in fantasy is very definitely glorified. We've got big battles, we've got heroes and all this kind of jazz. But when it comes to historical warfare, I, I find that it needs to be handled more sensitively like you do in your book. So how did you strike a balance between ensuring there was enough drama, but also enough realism and enough sensitivity and pathos in it? That's an interesting question. I do feel like when storytelling, you focus on the nuts and bolts of the story. First this happens, then that happens, then that happens. And you adjust the the balance of the emotions kind of as you go. And it's a bit of a trial and error process of getting the events right, the characters right, the, the vibe, for want of a better word, get that right too. In the case of The Warm Hands of Ghosts, um, it's not my first foray into historical fantasy. My first three books set in medieval Russia were also a mix of history and myth. But in the case of both that trilogy and this new book, I wanted my fantasy elements to be in conversation with the history, to say something about the history that you couldn't say with just realism alone. I didn't want to just have kind of a, a, a real world backdrop for my fantasy plot, essentially. I, I wanted to engage with the subject matter. And so... With, with World War One, I, I, I began with a ton of research, um, battlefield visits, books, memoirs, letters, 
And it's very hard to glorify World War One. Like, um, there's no impulse ever to glorify that conflict. It was, it was, it was terrible on every level. The biggest challenge, I think, was finding a way to bring my sort of fantasy piece in, in a way that felt interesting and new and said something real or sincere about the war instead of just being a bit silly, which um, I did. I did five drafts of this novel and the early ones were silly. And it was very much a process of digging deeper and deeper into the history, trying to find a place for my sort of fantastical ideas in this very dark and difficult moment in history. I find that really fascinating um, because there is at the heart of your book, um, you know, you obviously World War One, you know, it was shocking and horrific. It was a time of intense conflict and, and heartbreak and, you know, human horror and suffering. But as much as it was that, you also have this very strong kind of element of, of human connection. Um, you have, you know, two main characters who who come from different sides of the conflict, and they f- they have a shared connection there. They they find a binding amidst all of this this horror and this tragedy. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um, and specifically, um, I'm going to geek out here a bit because uh, it reminds me so much of my World War One uh, literature unit that I did while I was in school. And I completely love Wilfred Owen. Uh, Strange Meeting was one of my favorite poems <laughs> ever. Uh, and to find that that was like a crucial piece of inspiration for this book. I just want to ask you about that. And, uh, you know, those those two voices that you hear in the poem and how much that yep. influenced your your novel. Yeah, that was absolutely an inspiration for how my main male character story starts, um, as I'm sure everybody who's read Strange Meeting can attest. It was kind of the foundational piece. I um, When I was first toying with ideas for this novel, my husband and I went to France and Belgium um, for a couple of months, and we went to battlefields and did research um, for this book. And one of the most kind of moving places I went to was Wilfred Owen's Monument and his grave. I read all of his poems kind of in this run-up to writing and love Strange Meeting, in part because it was fantastical. Um, One thing about this war that I found so intriguing was there was this element of like surrealism that almost felt like fantasy. You had these weird juxtapositions of modernity and like the old world like colliding Um, like cavalry charging tanks. People had messenger pigeons, but also long-range artillery, right? You could bombard a guy miles away, but not talk to the guy in the next trench over. No radios. It just, it felt so surreal in some ways, this crash between the 20th and 19th century. And that one poem, Strange Meeting, gets at the sense of the surreal, right? The sense of hauntedness. Um, Another thing that struck me is in almost every memoir I read, someone, often casually, tells a ghost story. Everyone seemed to have something. Some, oh yeah, I had, I saw my old captain who died in 14. You know, I saw my brother, my brother who's dead, save my life. Um, These things happened over and over again. And it felt like a world that maybe could have felt fantastical to the people living in it, because it was so very strange. Um, And I leaned into that feeling. 
I haven't yet finished the whole book, but I have read enough to be both well, horrified and, and fascinated by your portrayal of the shell holes, the, 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 the no man's land, the wasteland of the, the, the horror that, you know, Flanders turned into, um, through, you know, through the bombardment. Um, and it, it is very much like that, um, you know, the scene where Satan is crawling across chaos. Um, and, and that's, you know, that when you were saying that it has that element of fantasy in it, you can see that it's echoed in the very landscape itself. You know, I was thinking about Tolkien too, right? Because he fought in the First World War and um, some of his descriptions in The Lord of the Rings, especially of like Mordor and the lands around Mordor, come straight out of his wartime experiences, right? Like smoking slag heaps, um, water that burns your mouth. Like these things that Frodo and Sam in Lord of the Rings experience were things he experienced in his service, right? And so it's probably the most sort of famous piece of World War One and fantasy is, is in Tolkien. But um, I think it's a landscape that's so inhuman that it feels like another world. And... Um, I read a lot of memoir accounts of the Battle of Passchendaele and even the most kind of like straightforward authors, very practical, very just like, here's what happened. Um, their accounts of the battle were still just mind boggling, just unreal, unearthly. And I tried to capture that sense of like, this is not the world wherever it is. Um, and in writing historical fantasy, I always try to use the mythologies of the time and place that I'm writing in to build the fantasy piece of my work. And in the case of uh, the First World War, you know, the obvious place to reach first was sort of places, like, was, was biblical, right? Um, and things related to that. So the book of Revelation was a huge inspiration. Dante's Inferno, um, Paradise Lost, like these pieces of the Western literary canon um, that deal with the underworld, with hell, with things that seem natural in this environment. So, One of the things you mentioned just there, Catherine, was talking about stories where someone talks about seeing their captain um, who has previously died. And I know that's obviously a, an element within the story as well in your book. And I do a lot of research in sort of Victorian and early 20th century ghost stories. And that is one of the things that I find cropping up so much. There are so many stories about, oh, I just saw this person at the end of my road and we had a chat and a cup of tea and then it turned out that they were dead and all this kind of thing. <laughs> it's, right. it, it's, a, it's always a subgenre all by itself. So I wanted to ask you, um, I'm assuming you research ghost stories related to the war or specifically from the period your novel is set. So how did wartime ghost stories differ from the gothic Victorian ghost stories that have gone before and that we tend to think of when we think of ghost stories? You know, it's funny. I do feel like the biggest thing for me is there's often, not always, but often element of like sentiment in a Victorian ghost story. Um, I think it kind of coincided with this Victorian culture of like mourning of like remembrances, death photography, all these things. And I think what the war did was it made death and dying commonplace. And the the tone around like a wartime ghost story for me was like so very matter of fact 
with no attempt to be like, oh, spooky dark night, misty fog, you know, I saw I saw a man at a crossroads. No, it's just very much, oh yeah, my captain tipped his hat to me in the window. He's been dead for three years. Um, then I got drunk. Like it just, I, I think the matter of factness is new, was kind of my takeaway. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as well. Oh, no, totally. I mean, you can tell, like you say, you've go, you go from... <clears throat> the late Victorian period where you do, like you say, you have spooky houses, you have people who are reenacting a tragic death and it's the footsteps in the hallway and it's all this kind of thing. Yeah. And then like you say, suddenly it is so matter of fact and oh, I'll need to have a look and see if I can find some of the stories. I know that in her book, uh, Melissa Edmonds and McCarla deals with a few of them and you can find them in, and like you say, and it, it's so different to the war poetry because I love Wilfred Owen as well and um, Dulcie and Takura Mest is one of my favourite poems mm-hmm. I mean favourite in the way that it's also really terrible and soul destroying but it is so beautifully written and it's so full of drama it's so full of cruelty and it's very vivid and then you get like you say you get these ghost stories that are just matter of fact and I'm like what's all that about so do you think it's a reflection that people are trying to make it matter of fact because it's so terrible and they're trying to make it sort of happy and like oh yeah I saw my captain and it was all fine or do you think it's just the point that everybody is like yeah all right everybody's dying it's fine let's just write a story about it which which way do you think it is um I wouldn't say happy I think a bigger thing is people in this moment in this time period are reluctant to imbue their experiences with emotional context it's easier to recount events and dissociate emotions because the emotions would be overwhelming so you have people kind of just like saying what happened to them in their memoirs and this very like first this happened then this happened then this happened but you almost never get like and here's how I felt right um, and I think that's in part literary convention at the time. I think, you know, the confessional memoir is not a thing. Um, but I think also it's just people who have lived through experiences that are very traumatic don't want to think about how they're feeling, how seeing this ghost made them feel. Because you, it's a survival mechanism for the mind is kind of my take. And I think that's the reason people got more matter of fact um, because it's the only way to mentally make it through something unimaginable. Well, that that certainly makes a lot of sense. Do you think then maybe if we've got people like Wilfred Owen who are at the front who are writing these poems about the reality of war, do you think maybe the ghost stories then are told by people at home? I mean, did you find any ghost stories that were written by soldiers on the front on the battlefield because obviously we know about the whole angel of mons thing um which we can get into later but i was interested are there any stories from the battlefield front at all they often don't feel like ghost stories there's something that told like ghost stories the the memoir that inspired the title of uh, the warm hands of ghosts is a memoir by a canadian soldier named will bird um which is called ghosts have warm hands um and the inspiration for his title was he, um, I think in 17, was asleep in a dugout with two other guys and his brother, who had vanished um, two years before, shows up at the dugout and is like, hey, Will, how's it going? Come with me. 
and takes Will's hand. His hand's warm. Will is 100% fully convinced his brother's alive. Like, like believes, oh, it's my brother. Amazing. Gets up and just follows this guy into the trench. Um, the brother vanishes like around a curve. Will's running after him, can't find him. Um, eventually kind of puzzled, still thinking his brother's alive, goes back to the dugout. And it's been smashed by art- artillery. It's, it's collapsed. The other two guys are dead. And that's his like ghost story. But he tells it like, oh, this happened to me. There's no like ghost story trappings. He insists like, it's my brother. It was daylight. I saw him. His hands were warm. I think it's interesting because it feels a bit like just the purpose of these ghost stories completely differs. Just the purpose of a, a Victorian Gothic ghost story is to scare, to frighten, to force people to have these heightened emotions and responses to things. Whereas these stories that you're talking about, uh, you know, as you say, were just kind of matter of fact recountings of what happened. It's not really there in order to force them or, or to to start a kind of an emotional response. It is almost the the ghost story is the emotional response to what's happening around them. I think that's a good way to put it. I think it's important to remember too that people in the war were not often like fully in their right minds. Like they're often sleep deprived. Um, there's plenty of alcohol going around. Um, there's plenty of heroin going around. There's like British Army issue heroin. Like it's very common. Plus, most people had some kind of cold or a fever. Um, tons and tons of like low grade persistent sickness where you're like running a temperature and feeling awful. Um, and so I think just no one's a hundred percent all the time with it. You know, just so many plus plus stress, plus incredible stress. Um, so between like stimulants, sickness and stress and sleep deprivation, you'd have people existing in sort of a heightened or dulled or changed or altered state a lot of the time. And that I'm sure affects how people experience their world, obviously. Did you come across any really interesting pieces of folklore? Um, I mean, we're, I'm super, as a historical fantasy writer as well, I'm super interested in folklore and you know how that can feed into stories, um, but specifically folklore of the battlefield. Um, I know Charlotte mentioned the Angel of Mons a while ago. I mean, the Angel of Mons is funny because it's not really folklore. Like one guy made it up as a story. He said it later, like it was my short story. It was my fun little tale. And everyone jumped on it and made it into folklore. Um, but a good sort of piece of actual folklore is the um, the wild men. I remember reading about this ages ago and then it was back in your book. And I was like, oh, I remember this. Yeah. It's, it's utterly fascinating. Just the idea that there was guys who deserted and didn't leave the battlefield. They stayed in abandoned trench systems, which there are many. Um, and it'd be guys from all the countries, like Italians, Germans, Austrians, um, French, Belgians. And they would just live in trenches wild and come out at night to like scavenge um, dead bodies and have this kind of like wild, free living society within the wider war and that was like the tale of the wild men and there's all kinds of anecdotes like like that you would hear hear them reveling in no man's land at night um people tried to like tempt them out with like bottles of wine and they wouldn't come etc etc so that was a 
I think, a real piece of trench folklore that's kind of fun to think about. So did that have a basis in reality? I mean, I'm not suggesting there are people in no man's land having parties, but where did this come from, do you think? How did this come about? Why do people continue believing it? I mean, my guess is that, and this kind of touched on in the book, is that um, you would regularly have people stuck in no man's land for days. Um, if you're hurt and you're in a shell hole, you can't get back. So you hear voices, people talking or screaming from no man's land. And you'll have guys who get injured and can't get back for a week, you know, three days, four days. And they're coming into like the aid station well after their units like been called back. Um, just like, oh yeah, I was stuck in a, t- in a shell hole. Um, and I think that's probably the basis um, for it. Also just how many abandoned trenches there were and how many like random holes and shell holes and abandoned places there were along the front lines too. Not just trenches, but whole houses that were half kind of ruined where there had been farms or inhabitants that were gone. Um, I think it really lends itself to the idea of people living wild in this wild space. You know, and also the, the what you touched upon earlier, the, the fact that they are all nationalities. They're living in a space where political divisions um economic divisions don't matter because I feel like there is something in there that, you know, obviously we we talk a lot about how the generals sat in, in their castles and moved troops around as if they were just pieces on a game board. Um, and that, you know, all the men who are actually fighting in the trenches, whether they be British, uh, Canadian, French, German, they're all in the same boat. Um, they're all, you know, pawns on a game board. Um, so do you think that's that's part of the, the, the dream of the wild men is this dream of let's get together in a place where, you know, we don't have to fight each other. I think it's this dream of escape, right? A way out, um, a, a place to escape to where there's no need to fight anymore. It's it's such a dream, I think, in this moment. Um, and I think that dream found its outlet in things like the story of wild men, because they're living the fantasy, right? You, you got out um, and you don't have to fight other people anymore. You talk about the wild men as being something that people kind of almost dream about going in and joining and, you know, leaving it all behind and having a, a good time out there and being so different to life in the trenches. Was this the folklore that inspired your story? Because obviously a big theme of Freddie's story, um, and to a certain extent Laura's, is they come across a place that is decadent, that is filled with forgetfulness and just leaving the war behind for a few minutes, usually a hotel or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So did that come from the idea of the wild men and then develop in your mind? Or was this something else completely that inspired you to, to write about the Fiddler's Hotel? No, that's a good question. I think that folktale in particular did help me get me going because the, the impulse behind it was so, at least to me, felt very clear, the impulse to escape. You, you can't really go home, you can't be a deserter, but you want out. Um, and so I, I feel like it was probably not uncommon, this like powerful impulse to get away. And the kind of follow-up questions I had were, what would this sort of refuge look like and what would it cost to stay there? And yeah, definitely that was um, an original inspiration that I built in a different direction. Um, Early on in my drafting, I experimented with like actual wild men, but um, none of like my ideas really worked. And 
as the idea developed, it kind of moved in this direction that I ended up taking, which worked better. Um, but I left just like a mention of the myth of wild men in the story to kind of call back to where the book started. That's lovely. I love little details like that. <laughs> you know, when we think about World War I um, in particular, I think people think about the poetry uh, that came out of the trenches. Well, and also came from home as well, as Wilfred Owen was responding to um, various poisonous propaganda um, in his Dolce et Coromes poem. Um, but speaking of like the idea of art set against war, um, you you have this idea of music, you know, the, the devil figure is a fiddler. Um, of his many elements, you know, why did you make him a fiddler? Why did you have this idea of music uh, at the heart of the novel? I had a couple of ideas going on in my head. Um, so I feel like the fiddle in particular as an instrument um, is associated with like folkloric ideas of the devil. Like in, in stories, the devil's a violinist. Um, like the musician Paganini was supposed to have been so good at violin playing that they thought he made a deal with the devil. Um, he would be checked for hooves before concerts because he was such a virtuoso. Um, there's a myth of, oh, what's the artist? That's temp- that's wild. I've not heard that before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Somebody else, like, somebody else wrote, who was it? Was it Paganini? No, I forget. But some violinist um, claimed to have had a dream where he met Devil at a Crossroads and got a piece of music from him um, that he would then play. And it was, like, his best ever piece of music. And, and, then, and then you have, like, obviously, like, modern things, like... The Devil Went Down to Georgia is a common one, right? So the, the violin is, is there in folklore. Um, and it makes sense to me insofar as like, if you think of the devil as like a fallen angel, angels are associated with music. Hosannas, right? Music of the spheres, creation, all this stuff. And so it would make sense to me that like a fallen angel would go from sort of heavenly choir situation to still being a musician, an earthly one. And um, that was sort of where it began. And I hesitate to get into spoiler territory, but I have many things I'd like to say about this, but I feel like I should be cautious about giving too much away. Totally understood. I just like the image, really, um, because it reminds me a bit of like the Pied Piper of Hamelin, who's another folkloric character I adore. I just love that idea of the um, music you can't resist. Yeah, there's another um, sort of a minor inspiration by, have you possibly read all the Anne of Green Gables books, all like nine? Not since I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, ninth, the ninth book, the last book um, follows Anne's daughter, Rilla, um, during the First World War. And um, her brother, Walter, goes to fight in the, in, the, in the war and writes this famous poem in the novel um, called The Pied Piper. And it's about how Pied Piper like leads all the young men of the world out to battle. And it's this whole thing. Um, and I didn't think about this until after I finished the book. But I was like, you know what? That was probably in my head somewhere. Um, I read and loved Anne of Green Gables and that was when I was younger, too. And I recalled sort of later that that was a moment in the last book. I just love how we are the sum of all that we've read and that these things kind of come up from your past, like you say in the Anna Green Gable stuff and things. And it's just, it's just amazing that it all comes in and filters through and you go, oh yeah, you know, totally do, totally didn't realize that was there. 
think that's why most writers are often like really intense readers because you just have so many things floating around in your head um, to kind of pull from, even subconsciously when you're working on a new project. Just to wind the episode up, I wanted to move away from inspirations and think a little bit about the facts. Because when I started reading your book, we obviously spend a lot of time at the beginning with Laura, and she's a Canadian nurse. And the information you put in, the historical facts or historical facts mixed with fiction, because obviously this is a fiction book, just blew me away. Like the fact that Belgians went to army nurses, not just for medical care, but for births and for the inner workings of how a hospital in and around a battlefield would be run. So given that many sources of World War I tend to focus on the soldiers, where did you find these stories of, of the women within World War I? I mean, one of the great things about World War I is that the people who fought it were immensely literate. Um, I read somewhere that since the war took place in this era, just before mass communication, there's no radios yet, um, everyone who fought the war had grown up getting and getting and transferring all information via the written word. So magazines, periodicals, books, letters. And so everyone is super, super literate. So you have masses, masses of primary sources. You have letters, you have memoirs, um, you have later on interviews from people who were survivors who fought. And a really good one for nurses is um, a book by a writer named Len McDonald, who was writing in the 60s and 70s. And she interviewed a lot of um, World War I nurses um, when they were older. And her book is called um, The Roses of No Man's Land. It's fantastic. And it's full of like primary accounts. Um, there's also memoirs. Um, there's also letters that nurses wrote. So you can hear their voices. A big thing for me um, with writing about nurses is that I always felt they could be divided into two like types. You have the volunteers who were often younger, often middle class. Um, and they seem to me like the ones you hear from and about more. It's it's very romantic, right? Young girls, you know, the, you know, Edwardian like maidens, like leave their schoolrooms to go be nurses and see the horrors, and they come back, go to Oxford, um, via Britain, and write their memoirs, kind of thing. Um, all good. But in their accounts, and often in, in soldiers' accounts too, it felt like the professional nursing staff got a bit disrespected, was kind of my take. Um, because the women who weren't volunteers, who were either army nurses or had been professionals before the war, um, they were working class. They didn't go to Oxford. They were often the daughters of tradesmen. Um, and it wasn't, I think, very respectable in this era to have a career at all. And I always felt like the tone that books and memoirs would take towards the professional nursing staffs was kind of dismissive. Like, oh, these old grumpy battle axes, like charging around um, kind of take. And that seemed wrong to me because, you know, Edwardian maiden is nice, but I was more interested in women who had chosen sort of against convention to have careers and who were very skilled. And so it was really important to me to have my main character be an actual nurse, not just a volunteer who like jumped in when the war broke out. So you obviously have three main female nurses within your story. Mm -hmm. Their voices are very, very distinct. Are they based on people that you've read about? Did you read a certain memoir of, of one character and go, yep, that's going to be Laura. Yep, that's going to be Pym and so on. 
Um, not at all. So I had a couple, um, Mary Borden, who's a character in the book was a real person too. Um, she wrote a memoir called the forbidden zone. Um, very impressionistic, very artistic. Um, I did not follow the contours of her life very closely, but I really appreciated her voice. One of the few like strong literary voices in the war zone who was a woman that I read. And another sort of a nurse was a woman named Kate Luard who was um, in this this casualty clearing station close to the front lines and left behind letters detailing and a diary detailing her experiences. Um, very matter of fact, but quite harrowing in its own way. And so I'd read voices, but when I'm writing, I'm not thinking of trying to imitate somebody. It's just, I, I try to create the voice on the page as seems like right and natural. And that was kind of how Laura Marion Pem came from. Um, the other big piece of the book is this idea of the world being bifurcated into new world and old world, the 19th century colliding with the 20th century. And different characters exist in the new world and some in the old world. And I tried to have their speech and mannerisms reflect sort of which space they were occupying. So, of course, like Mary and Laura are both women of the new world and Pim, Penelope Shaw, is a woman of the old world. And I think that informs their voices, too. Yeah, that really does come across. I have to admit, when I was reading it and Laura goes back to um, the battlefield and Pim goes with her, and I'm like, yes, because they make such beautiful, contrasting characters. And whilst Little Laura is the heroine and the one that I really rooted for, at the same time, I was like, I really want Pim to hang around because she's just so interesting and, and such a good foil for Laura and Laura's cynicism. And it was just, yeah, wonderful pairing. Thank you. I, the, Pim was my favorite character to write. I feel like her arc was really interesting and I did enjoy writing their scenes together were some of the pieces that I enjoyed writing the most. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about all things World War One and Wild Men. And I wish we'd had more time to talk about the Angel of Mons because that is my favourite story ever. <laughs> um, and poetry and all this fabulous stuff. So thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on an amazing book. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.